I have been so thoroughly enjoying a beautiful new book called Riding the Bus with My Sister, A True Life Journey by Rachel Simon, a book published by Plume. The the book is inspired by a true life experience of the author, Rachel Simon, growing up with her sister, Beth. Uh, And uh, much of that experience uh, was deepened uh, because of sort of a year-long experiment which which Rachel Simon uh, undertook uh, in which she rode the city buses with her sister, Beth, and got to know Beth better and uh, the community in which she lived. And uh, the, the result is, is a really beautiful and thought-provoking book. And I am delighted that we can speak with Rachel Simon uh, about this on the morning show today. Rachel Simon, we welcome you. Hi, it's just wonderful to be here. Um, I want to get one matter out of the way, which seems a, a bit awkward. But I, I just want to dispatch it right off the bat. We're talking about your sister, Beth. Uh, who you say uh, is a spirited woman with mental retardation. Yes. Uh, one of the things I appreciate is the fact that I, I happen to like the term mental retardation, and I am kind of impatient with those who don't like to use that term. Uh, and I'm not sure it's, it's your decision or maybe your publisher's decision, but that, that is the terminology you are uh, seem to be most comfortable with in talking about Beth and her her capabilities. Could we just talk about that for a moment? Yeah, boy, we could spend <laughs> the whole show on it. Yeah, no kidding. And uh, and yeah. I I ask you right off the bat because I don't want I don't want that hanging over the rest of the interview for the sake of those who think that uh, I am or you are being somehow insensitive here. Let's let's just talk about that choice of terminology if we can. Well, uh, I, I think this is actually something I have to do in stages of my development. When I was a kid, the term that was used was mentally retarded, and I actually used that up until the point when I was riding with my sister and um, became enlightened that things had changed to something called people-first language, where you say the person first, a person with whatever their disability is. Uh, So I switched to that, and then I found out that the term mental retardation some people really looked askance at um, p- partially because it's too broad of a term. It, it encompasses too much, and partially because it, it has come to have very pejorative connotations. Um, so what I now do is I said to my sister, what would you say you have? And she said, I have special needs. She herself is offended by the term mental retardation. So when I'm describing her to people at this point, I say, when she was a little baby, she was diagnosed with mental retardation. She now prefers the term special needs, so that's what I'll say from now on in the conversation. Hmm. So that's how I do it, because I need to honor her and how she would like to be described. And believe me, she doesn't pay any attention to anything that's PC. (laughs) That's not her area of interest. It's just she... She understands the pejorative connotations of the term and and doesn't want to be associated with it. So I think the way I lean at this point is if you're speaking about an individual, you can say, what do you want me to say? Mm. Uh, And then say what they want. Um, This does get complicated in some cases where I've had many people approach me. The family has never actually said to the individual, you have this diagnosis, and actually said the term. And in my family, in fact, we never said mentally retarded or any variation thereof in front of my sister. And that's incredibly common in families, that, that the diagnosis itself may be discussed among other family members, but not in front of the person. And uh, 
again, that could be an entire show as well. Right. One of the things that's so interesting about this book is that uh, we kind of alternate between the experience you had of, of getting to know your sister Beth in, in a more intense way, uh, but you alternate that with reflections back on the experience of growing up with someone like Beth uh, in, in the midst of, of your family. Tell us about that decision you made as an author. Uh, I, I feel really strongly that it's, I, I teach creative writing, and it's very important for writers to have the readers understand a character's motivation. In fact, one of my editors once said to me, do you know what a character is? A character is motivation on legs. Mm. And I think that when you're dealing with real characters, people who really exist, our motivations for whatever we do tend to be very complex and uh, you can't really understand it without getting quite a bit of background. On the other hand, you don't want to bog the reader down by giving them a huge amount of background before you get to the story. So this is something I call an ABAB structure, which is used a lot in pop music, actually, um, and where you just flip back and forth between the present and the past with both moving forward in time so that the reader isn't going to get lost. And uh, it, it's a really fun form to write in. It tends to illuminate things for people very effectively. And I've had a lot of writers get in touch with me and say, wow, I want to start doing this too. Hmm. Uh, I, I need to sort of add that everything I know about writing, I learned from the Beatles. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed that from re- uh, reading this book, but uh, whatever you say. Um, how true is this book? Oh, completely. It's completely true. Um, uh, and I should explain for the readers, uh, for excuse me, the listeners who uh, don't understand how buses come into all this. My my sister, who I grew up with, she was not institutionalized, and I love very much. But the relationship became complicated over the years um, because of all the issues involved with someone with special needs. Um, we'd grown distant as time went on, and after she left the family, she moved into a group home. And then she started living independently in her own apartment, and uh, and started to develop a very unusual lifestyle of riding the buses in the city where she lives, bus to bus to bus, uh, all day, every day, developing a thriving social community and support system among the drivers in particular, and to a lesser extent, the passengers. And the family looked askance at this, and I did too, and the distance between us was pretty pretty bad. And then um, she asked me to ride with her for a year and I was very reluctant to do this, but on the other hand, I was really sick of feeling guilty that I was being such a bad sister, because when you're the sibling of someone with special needs, you're constantly gauging yourself, am I being a good sister or a bad sister? And, and I was being a bad sister, and I knew it, so I said yes, and our arrangement was that I'd come a few days every um, couple weeks and really immerse myself in her 12-hour bus days and, uh, and get to know her life and so that's how I that's how I did that year and it really changed everything for me in terms of knowing her understanding about the disabilities rights movement through her AIDS um, meeting bus drivers and being amazed by them and, and having a number of other things happen that maybe we'll get to if I remember correctly uh, at, at some point uh, a writing assignment uh, came your way yes that actually set the whole thing into motion even before she asked me to ride with her. Um, she wouldn't have just done that spontaneously because there was a, a long-term wariness between us. Uh, I'd been raised to 
protect her and look after her. And um, in my mind, love and control had started to get very tangled together, but I didn't realize that. Uh, what I saw as an expression of love, she saw as me trying to control her, and so she's a very willful person and does what she wants, and so we were constantly at odds with each other, and it was terrible, and we were just angry with each other a lot, so we really didn't interact that much, and it was it was terrible. Um, and then uh, I was writing freelance commentary for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I ran out of ideas and uh, mentioned to my editor that Part of why I ran out of ideas was I had too many jobs and I couldn't think straight, and also because it was Hanukkah and I needed to go visit my sister for the holidays, so I had to work around her bus schedule. And he said, what are you talking about? And I described with great embarrassment what she did. I was never embarrassed by my sister herself, but this behavior was so eccentric and didn't make sense to me, so I was embarrassed by it. And and when I described it, he said, oh, well, that's so interesting. And, and I think he picked up that I was being very judgmental about it. And he, he, and he said to me, well, your next assignment is to ride with her for a day and write a piece about it. And, um, and that's what got me started with the whole thing. And my sister was very receptive and, in fact, thrilled that I wanted to do it. And, and the first bus I got on that first day, I realized that everything I'd thought about her was wrong that she had, in fact, created a, a wonderfully independent life um, and a life of a great deal of freedom and richness and, and real friendship, that these drivers weren't just being charitable toward her. They really did care about her, and she really cared about them, and they were really two-way relationships, and, uh, and that she was very happy and, in fact, certainly happier than I was and happier than anyone else I knew. And then when she asked me to ride with her a few weeks later is when the whole invitation happened, um, I already knew what the experience would be like to some extent, although I had no idea of the huge world that it was going to open up for me. Mm. One thing that is not clear to me is how conscious you were about the possibility of writing a book about this year-long experience with, with Beth. That's a great question. Well, you know, uh, this was this is actually my fourth book, and when you were a writer, you, everything you do, <laughs> I mean, looking out the window, you, you know, <laughs> it's true. There's a book there. Yeah, somewhere. oh, yeah. And, um, and, and also when you teach writing, because sometimes students will say, you know, ah, I can't get any ideas, and I'll say, you know, you actually I'll give you an, an exercise for people who want to be uh, writers. If you're blocked, just come up with a, an incredibly simple sentence, the man walks. The, the woman laughs, and then say to yourself, okay, let's be really specific about what kind of man, and then let's be really specific about what kind of walk, and then let's give it a setting, and then let's give it a motivation, and suddenly before your eyes, you start creating a story. So um, I was always playing games like that with myself and looking for ideas, and when I got on the bus with my sister, I realized it wasn't, in fact, her that triggered it, it was the driver's because they're so interesting. Bus drivers are very colorful characters. Uh, many of them are very warm-hearted, very giving, uh, very talkative. Uh, not all of them, but many of them. Very compassionate. A lot of them, uh, just about all of them that I met, um, didn't want to be a bus driver growing up. They fell into it, maybe chafed against it at first, went through a spiritual conversion uh, sometimes because of things like alcoholism or uh, a major health crisis and sometimes divorce and all kinds of things, but the school of hard knocks. And then on the other side of it, with uh, a, a pretty intense level of spiritual commitment, 
they dedicated themselves to the giving that they could do on the buses. And it's really pretty incredible. I've actually been hearing from religious leaders all over the country who have found spiritual messages in the book. Uh, obviously, I'm Jewish, but a lot of Christians have been reading it and Buddhists. It's very interesting and seeing all kinds of spiritual messages in it, which come from the drivers. So they would talk and I actually get carsick, which I didn't say in the book, um, <laughs> <laughs> which made the whole thing pretty challenging. But I, it forced me to bring along a tape recorder, and uh, so I tape record them, and and just the way they talked was so colorful and interesting, and and they would so readily go into telling stories about their lives and and giving their philosophies of mm. life, uh, and and one day I said to them, God, why are so many of you philosophers and anthropologists and and sort of advisors of how to live a better life? And uh, and this guy said to me, well, you know, what do you do when you're a bus driver? You sit in this chair with people and you think, I've thought a lot in here about life. And then I thought, wow, well, what did Socrates do? He sat in a chair with people and he thought. And that's what a driver does. Mm. Another driver said to me, you know, if you don't care about people and want to listen to them and give them their dignity, you might as well drive a truck. And it's true, the people, the long-timers in bus driving, unless they're grouches by disposition... Uh, they are people, they are people, people. They really care. I've had drivers say to me, we're nurses. That's, that's what we are. And I've also had, again, getting back to the spiritual thing, I've had so many drivers say to me, I'm doing God's work. God is on the bus. I mean, it's, it's really, uh, in a daily way, a profound experience for many of the people who dedicate their lives to it. The very first bus driver I think you talk about in the book, uh, Tim, says at one point, uh, in, in terms of trying to explain why he's a bus driver, he, he, uh, he explains, there's so much richness yes. on a bus. That's and that's so striking because I think that's just about the last thing any of us would say about a city bus is that there is richness on a city bus. We think of it as a big, rattly, empty vehicle, and yeah. there's no there's no plush seats, and there's not a whole lot to look at. Um, I mean, there's no no movie. They don't serve you meals. I mean, uh, and and yet he saw richness in in uh, in every sense of the word. Well, it's really true, and I think people who ride buses every day. Many of them come to see this if they're paying attention. That Tim also says, a bus is a microcosm of the world, that you have people of all ages, all levels of ability, all ethnicities put together. And it's a real opportunity for a community to form. And whether or not the community does form depends on many factors, but one of them is the personality of the driver. And if the driver is very friendly, the bus tends to be friendly, and people tend to start speaking to each other, and sometimes even as a unit, even as a, as a collective, but sometimes just one-on-one and, and get to meet each other. And it's really just a matter of saying, I'm going to open myself to the possibility here. Uh, Tim also is an amateur historian, and uh, his nickname in the, in the bus company is uh, The Professor. And <laughs> he, he loves how so many of the elderly passengers will speak very freely about their lives 80, 90 years ago, and what the world was like then. And he says, you know, it's like living, driving a bus is like living inside a history book, that you hear everything. And, it, and it's true, it's basically, it doesn't take much to get people opening up and talking about themselves and connecting with their neighbors. And, uh, and 
Tim, who's also, my sister calls him Happy Timmy, he smiles all the time, and it's very easy for him to open people up that way. Yeah. I loved how he said at one point, I spend my day meeting people who lived important parts of their lives before I was born. Yeah. And it's so interesting because I think a whole lot of people, and we, we maybe overgeneralize in saying that a lot of young people in particular uh, have little or no interest in anything which occurred in the world or in anybody's lives before they were in the world. And, uh, and actually, there, there are all kinds of things. And, and, and just the fact that all these things happened before we ourselves were here uh, makes them potentially so fascinating. Yes, it's so true. And in a way, I find listening to the older people's stories, and I don't have a ton of them in the book, I do have a few, um, it, it's like listening to the stories of people with disabilities or the stories of bus drivers. It, there's this huge wealth of narrative out there, you know, to get back to, what am I going to write about? There's so many stories everywhere you go, and so many of them have never been told or people don't give respect to, but they're there just under the surface, just hundreds and hundreds of stories in each person just waiting to be told. Mm. We're speaking with Rachel Simon. Her book is Riding the Bus with My Sister, A True Life Journey. And let me just ask real quickly, um, so the people that you spoke with, these bus drivers, for instance, and certain other passengers, if you were using a tape recorder, then I am assuming that they had at least some level of awareness that you were a writer. Oh, yeah. And that potentially the words they were speaking to you might end up in the pages of a book. Oh, yes. And in fact, I would, uh, each person who appears in the book, I spoke to privately in great detail um, and said right up front, you know, um, I'm thinking of moving this toward a book. And, uh, and initially, I did say to them, each one, how do you feel about me using your name? And a few of them said to me, I'd prefer you didn't for reasons of their own privacy. So ultimately, I made the decision to change everybody's name except for Beth's and mine. And, uh, and then that way, everyone's, protect, everyone's privacy is protected. One thing you mentioned early in the book is that before you un- undertook this experiment with Beth, you, you were mostly keeping... Uh, in touch with one another through letters. That's right. I enjoyed how you said that you would, I mean, uh, every so often, I guess you said maybe once a week or so, you would scratch out a, a card to her, and 15 <laughs> would cascade back from her. It's true. What were those like? What 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 would she say to you in, in uh, all of these uh, cards or letters which she would send back to you? Oh, I have about 15 on my desk. I could read you one. Um, well, she... Initially, for years, they would write about pop songs and soap opera stars and sitcoms and did I like the show or that show. And she was my connection to pop culture because I got rid of my TV and I, uh, I just I wasn't uh, that engaged in contemporary pop culture. Um, so they were amusing, but I couldn't relate. And then when the drivers came into her life, that's how I realized something had changed because suddenly... She wasn't talking about that stuff at all. She was talking about people named Jacob and Estella and Rodolfo, and I couldn't figure out who they were, and then I figured out they were bus drivers, but I still, it took me a long time to figure out that she was just on the bus all the time and, uh, and that that's what she was doing for her life. Um, but the, the overall answer is, regardless of the content, uh, coming home to three or four envelopes that are ornately festooned with incredibly colorful stickers <laughs> where every square inch of the envelope is covered with stickers and then you get this 
very happy letter inside um, that's always signed, Love, Cool, Beth. Uh, you know, no matter what mood you're in, you feel good. And mm. even if there's tension between you, you still feel good. Cause, and I've actually found this over the years as I, I've been a long-time uh, letter correspondent with many people. It doesn't really matter what you get along like in person, but how that's working. If your, your letter-writing relationship is really great, then that's, in a way, the real relationship. And so for many years, our real relationship was through letters, and then when the buses came in, that's when we mended our face-to-face relationship. And then, of course, that made the letters all the more fun to get. Right. One of the things you, you talk about in this book is how, uh, I mean, we, we shouldn't give the impression that every single bus driver was a saint no. and a, you know amateur historian and so on, nor that every passenger that, that rode these buses with Beth was uh, necessarily a kind-hearted person, patient with her and, and compassionate towards her. Uh, and, and we're told some of that, of that mix. And one of the things you, you, you help us understand is how Beth would be aware of the difference. I mean, she certainly has, has enough uh, mental capacity to be very well aware yes. that some people in this world are nice and some are not so nice. At one point, if I'm not mistaken, she says something about how she'll, she'll give somebody two chances... <laughs> And if you're nasty to her twice, that's, that's it. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, yes, she, I, you know, I'm not sure how much she had that capacity before riding the buses, but um, through riding them, I think she's become, she's developed a thicker skin. She's developed all the more of an ability to suss out who is genuinely good-hearted and who's faking it and who isn't even bothering to fake it. Um this city also, it's, uh, I don't know how unusual it is. I'd like to think it's unusual because it has a, a culture of rudeness. Um, and uh, there's, and not everybody participates in it, but particularly people who grew up there um, seem to think nothing of meddling in other people's uh, day-to-day lives and, and blurting out very rude comments. And And I saw people do it in front of me. Uh, and they object to her sitting on a bus uh, and talking to the driver, and I just don't see why it's any of their business. It just is, you know, it's very strange to me. But um, because she knows every driver's schedule meticulously, and at this point she knows pretty much every passenger's schedule meticulously, um, she she knows the problematic riders and she knows the problematic drivers and she doesn't ride with the driver she doesn't like in fact she rates all the drivers by the top 10 so you know as a driver you always know where you stand anyway and uh and she'll avoid those who aren't in the top 10 or top 20 and and with the passengers if somebody gives her grief she'll either ignore them or give them grief back and i think she gauges it according to her history with that person and who the driver is and and the dynamics that are going on at that moment just like anybody else. So in some ways, it's really helped her ability to move through the world, and it gave me a, a greater sense of comfort about her ability to take care of herself in, in a world that is sometimes very hostile to people with disabilities. Well, it's interesting, too, because uh, in addition to those people that just are unkind enough or ignorant enough to not even give someone like Beth a chance, uh, we're also reminded in this book that sometimes there are people who begin with the best of intentions, mm. but uh, but where things do not play out in perpetuity as, as you might want. For instance, uh, you talk at one point about a, 
uh, a bus driver named Lorenzo, who's a weightlifter, and who uh, initially is is very affectionate towards Beth and receptive to her and patient with her, but his patience wears thin after yeah. a while. And this obsession she uh, had uh, with buses and to some extent with him, uh, just he grew weary of it after a while. And I suppose that's kind of a sad reality we need to be uh, aware of uh, as well. And probably a lot of us might be in that same boat. Yes, I think one of the challenges of uh, interacting with some people with cognitive disabilities is um, recognizing that you when to handle them in a somewhat different way than you might other people and when to be the way you would be with anybody else and one important thing you would do with anybody is set limits. And if they want more than you want to give, to figure out how to say, enough, enough. I'm not going to give that much more. So what this guy needed to do was say to Beth, you know, you can't ride with me five hours a day. You know, let's, let's put you on a schedule and, and an hour a day or an hour a week, you know, whatever. Um, but, or, or, or let me take a month off, whatever, whatever he was going to do. But didn't establish that and uh, although I do have to say after the book came out um, he came up to Beth because I'd written about it in the book he came up to Beth and he apologized and uh, he said oh I'm sorry about you know what's in the book and she's of course being Beth she said well it's all true and he <laughs> said well, yeah I know it isn't and he apologized and they started to mend their relationship and she started to ride with him again but somewhat more cautiously this time we're speaking with Rachel Simon. The book is Riding the Bus with My Sister, A True Life Journey. Uh, I want to step back into uh, your childhood and Beth's childhood for just a, 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 a couple of minutes, if we can. I love the title of uh, one of the portions. You say, A Time of Snows and Sorrow, mm -hmm. in which you explain uh, the experience of, of your parents uh, eventually determining that... Uh, that uh, that Beth was born with cognitive uh, disabilities. That's a, a <laughs> that's an astounding story in and of itself. In the uh, seeming indifference or sort of genial indifference of of the doctors, which your parents approached in trying to, as soon as your mother started to realize that there is something not quite right with Beth. I mean, yeah. that just makes your blood run cold to uh, to read about uh, how long it took before finally somebody took uh, your mother's concerns seriously. Yes, uh, and I have found uh, I've inadvertently become a, uh, an advocate for um, people with disabilities and, and the transit industry, and I've found as I go around the country and talk with people that um, it, it, this, is, this is such a common story, it's the rare story that isn't this story. The common story is you go to the doctor and you say something's going on, and the doctor is dismissive, or in some cases, misdiagnosed, mixed diagnosis, and sometimes the misdiagnosis will stick for 30, 40 years, uh, and all kinds of improper treatments are given as a result. Um, with my sister, there was really only a lag of half a year or so, but it was an incredibly frustrating time for my parents, and I think uh, this kind of introduction to the big them that family members call the system is part of why a lot of family members, by the time they get to the point of the individual getting involved in special ed and receiving services as an adult, have a, a great deal of uh, hostility or at least wariness about the system because it has done them wrong. It has not taken them seriously. 
uh, and it has made their lives very, very frustrating. Um, I do think things are somewhat better now, but to be the parent of someone with special needs is to be thrown in the position of being a fighter, a warrior. I mean, you, you must be, and some people are dispositionally prepared for this, and some people aren't. Some rise to the occasion, and some don't. And as a sibling, you too are put in that position, although the different spin on that is that you didn't choose to have the child. So some siblings go through additional issues of resentment, uh, and, and some don't. It, it really varies according to the person. For me, my love of my sister always overrode everything else, and if I did feel resentment, it was more about other things. It wasn't really about her. Hmm. You talk about how she was an incredibly stubborn person, and of course, to this day. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you talk about some of the friction and fighting. You also talk about a couple of incredibly frightening moments uh, during your, your respective childhoods uh, when, uh, when Beth sort of stumbled into uh, things that could have done her great, great harm. Yes. Uh, yes, there was the mis- mischief of um, grabbing my mother's oil paints from her uh, paint-by-number oil paintings, which she was... My mother was having a lot of depression problems, and it was something she was doing to try to get herself together. And uh, she stopped after Beth grabbed the oils and drank them and had to get rushed to the hospital. You said she drank them like like uh, holiday punch or something like yeah. that. And, oh, yes, they were know. little cups of oil. Why not drink them? Yeah, and they look, look real pretty. And, uh, right. That, I mean, th- that in a nutshell <laughs> reminds us, I mean, if, if, uh, if parenting young children of, 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 of standard abilities wasn't challenging enough, Yes. I mean, we, we quadruple the challenges when we're talking about uh, someone like Beth. Indeed, it is so. And um, uh, something that I've also discovered from talking to people is that my sister's willfulness is also very common among people with cognitive disabilities. Uh, in fact, a lot of her behaviors that I describe in the book that I, I thought were very specific to her and to our family, uh, I constantly hear from people are really common, like going to the dentist and how she doesn't want the dentist to... uh, The dentist can look in her mouth, but the dentist can't put any tools or fingers in her mouth. You know, I don't want that. Uh, Or how she doesn't like to be hugged. She doesn't really want to be touched. Um, That's something that comes up a lot. So uh, it really does enhance the challenges because you kind of have to learn how to just accept what this person's preferences are uh, and, and maybe alter how you would normally interact with somebody and come to terms with that in yourself. Hmm. This, this is not all uh, roses and soft focus. No. Uh, I mean, this is a, 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 a sometimes very turbulent experience of, of riding the bus with your sister, and she drives you uh, nearly mad at... at, at at certain points, particularly at one point when you realize in maybe a, a, a more profound way than you had before, that Beth is just cannot change. She, she essentially cannot change and that uh, she does not break out of any of her patterns, especially if she's, for instance, obsessed with a given driver or something. Yeah. It, it takes a cataclysmic event to, to shake her loose, and, and nothing that you say or anyone else says uh, is, is ever going to sway her. And uh, I can imagine how being with a person like that for extended periods of time really could be difficult after a while. That was probably maybe a surprise for you. Yes, 
and a hard one. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I'm, I barely know what to say because uh, you're bringing it up. Uh, just throws me back into the emotions of it. Um, I really did in that moment find myself thinking what I say in the book, which is how I so wish I were a saint, and I mm. so wish that this didn't bug me, and, uh, and I found myself muttering the serenity prayer to myself. Um, but um, it did help me say to myself, you know, but I can change. Uh, I can't look to her to change, but I can change. I can change how I deal with her and feel about her, and I can also change things in my own life that I may not like, that I don't have to be someone who doesn't change and I have to say that since the book has come out and she and I have gotten all the closer, um, the things that she won't change don't anger me as much. Uh, I, I have a literary device in the book called The Dark Voice, which is sort of the angry voice in my head that would shout at her, but just in my head, a lot, a lot, a lot. And, um, and the dark voice uh, has quieted down somewhat, for now at least, which is, a great relief. So I think the change that I can look to is is the one within myself, and and how because it can change in myself, how that can change the relationship that I have with her. Uh, if only because fifty percent of the relationship is changing. What was it like to write this book? <laughs> I mean, I ask that because uh, I think I think we might blithely assume that it was a, a, an almost entirely pleasant, cathartic kind of experience. The closer I look at this book, and, and as I listen to you talk about it, the more I kind of doubt that. I wonder if, if to, to, to what extent there, there was also some real pain involved in, in writing about some of this because you've chosen to write about it so honestly. Again, that could be a whole show in and of itself. Um, it was very creatively and psychologically challenging. Um, it was psychologically challenging because as I was writing it, I needed to work out my stuff with my sister. I will say one thing that helped me a lot was finding an online support group for adult siblings of people with special needs. And for listeners out there who are interested, it's called SibNet. I have a link to it on my website, but you can just look it up. It was very helpful because I stopped feeling quite as alone in my internal struggles. Um, also, I suppose another emotional challenge, um, we didn't talk about this at all, but there's a, a major place in the book where my mother has a, uh, goes off the rails, yes. and, and the family situation changes very um, cataclysmically, and it was very hard, and, and we all went through a traumatic period um, as a result of that. And sometimes people say, oh, well, that must have been really, really hard to write, but this is another writing tip. I actually wrote that whole part as another book, which I never published, hmm. and I got it all out of my system, and I got the, the agenda of the, the last vestiges of anger toward my mother out of my system. So um, since I never published it, but I'd kind of already created it, I was able to just pluck from that story exactly the scenes I needed without agendas and without... Um, some whole big, huge emotional turmoil about it all. So one thing I do recommend to people, which they, it makes them roll their eyes, but if, if you're writing a memoir about something that's traumatic, consider writing two memoirs. The first one, to get the junk out, 
and get the get the agendas out and then the second one to be fairer and more compassionate to the characters and just use what you really do need so uh so that part wasn't as hard as you would think uh, oddly the bus driver sections were some of the hardest sections because when you're on a bus even if all you're writing about is one hour on that bus your mind is going in about a million different directions and so how do you stay on one thematic track through a chapter, even though these were really short chapters. I wrote them mm-hmm. short so people could read them in, a, in the course of a bus ride. Right. Um, and the thing that helped me with that is just it's one of those funny little writer anecdotes. I hope I have a, a minute to, to pass it along. Um, I was tearing my hair out, and I'd been working on them for about a year, and they were still skittering all over the place, and I was very frustrated. It was all the same material, but I couldn't stay on track with it. And finally, a friend of mine who's a, a dear friend who's not a writer um, called me up and he said, how you doing? And I said, oh, I'm ready to shoot myself. I can't make the driver chapters work. And he said, um, I can help you. Next week I'm having surgery and I'm not going to tell you what it's for, but I will tell you I have to spend the rest of the week lying in the bathtub and I'm not going to have anything to do. So please call me up and read me those chapters word by word and I'll help you get them back on track. Oh, wow. And he did. And so the driver chapters are thematically coherent due to my wonderful, wonderful friend who spoke to me from the bath. Wow. Well, I do enjoy those those chapters so much as we really get to meet uh, this uh, array of drivers, each a, a fascinating individual, and, and so many of them offering marvelous insight, including one of them that says at one point, uh, it's good for me that she, meaning Beth, tests my patience. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's not often that we welcome the things in our life that test our patience, but that's how we, I suppose, develop patience and and other skills and gifts that we need to to navigate through life a bit more successfully. Yes, you I f- think you're right. You feel good about the book as you look back on it. I feel I feel good about having done the experience. I feel the book was an, an amazing miracle. The the fact that it came together and and that it worked as well as it does. And, and then since it has come out, that it has, uh, it has made a, a big difference in the lives of people with disabilities who look at my sister's independence as, as inspiration. I mean, she has a boyfriend. She lives on her own, and they, uh, they love that. And, and it's a book about self-determination, which is the civil rights development and the lives of people with disabilities. And, uh, and then there's the spiritual thing, and then I love being able to say to bus drivers, you know, you guys are great, because <laughs> I don't think enough people do that. So it's been just, uh, it's bigger than me at right. this point. It's as big as a bus, and I'm just a rider on it. <laughs> right. Uh, does Beth know, how much does Beth know <laughs> about this book and the dimensions of this book and her place in this book? Well, she certainly knew I was writing it, and um, when it came out, she was it's thrilled, 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 and she carried it around all the time and drew pictures on it, and um, the drivers were really happy about it, and she, she actually set up a book signing for me in the driver's room of the bus uh. company, which was great. <laughs> um, and she also sometimes tries to sell books to anyone, you know, everyone she meets. And I said to her, you know, okay, if you sell a book, I'll give you a dollar profit. And she said, well, what about two? (laughs) Okay. So she gets $2 profit for every book she sells. Um, And so she's very proud. Uh, And and I think the thing she likes most about it, though, is that it's made us a lot closer and uh, and it's a fun thing. I mean, if someone who loved you wrote a book about you, 
and you were already a person who thought reasonably well of yourself, you'd feel even better, particularly if you lived in an environment where you had to deal daily with a lot of hostility. You'd feel as special as you are. Mm. And I don't mean special in the way they say special ed or special needs. I mean really prized. You'd feel someone gave you a tribute that, that everyone deserves mm. and that you actually got. And, that very, f- and that very few people uh, ever receive. Yes. Yes. The book is wonderful. I hope you can tell Thank that you. I really liked it so much. <laughs> Again, you. called Riding the Bus with My Sister, A True Life Journey, published by Plume, the author, Rachel Simon. Rachel Simon, a great, great pleasure to read this book and to speak with you about it on The Morning Show. Thank I Thank you. you. So much.